0: Constipation is classic during ovulation or right before a period because progesterone peaks right before getting a period. With menopause, we tend to see more constipation as well because the estrogen is going down. But generally speaking, in in any part of a woman's life when hormones are not balanced, we're gonna see more dramatic shifts in the microbiome and digestive symptoms.
1: I'm Lane Cuspin, and this is the Mind Body Mother Podcast, where we dive into the nitty gritty of all things physical and mental well-being for moms, future moms, and all who identify with the motherhood journey. There is no such thing as TMI, taboo topics, or oversharing in these conversations with myself, a mom of two, and my incredible village of wellness experts. If it will help you physically, mentally, and emotionally, we're digging into it in these conversations. So grab that twice reheated coffee or tea, press play, and join me. This is the Mind Body Mother Podcast. Today's podcast focuses on gut health, which is such a big part of my health journey in healing my IBS and just an issue that i have dealt with through my entire life and feel really grateful to be on the other side of now it is a challenge for so many people dealing with constipation diarrhea other gut health issues and so i'm really grateful to bring aaron from nutrition rewired onto the podcast today Erin is a registered dietitian who specializes in gut health and specifically in hormone balance, which is what I love about Erin's specialty is that she's really able to dig into the different seasons of life for women from menopause, perimenopause, postpartum, pregnancy, preconception, and really explain to us in today's episode what's happening in our bodies. Where's the gut hormone brain connection? and some of the things that happen during these different phases of life and how to address them. If you ever wanted to know what a healthy poop looks like and how often it happens and all of the things related to pooping and bowel movements, you will find that in this episode. It is a topic that I think we don't often talk about, but is such a normal and important part of our health. And Erin really breaks down for us what that should look like and what to do when it's not happening. We also, of course, get into Erin's motherhood journey, which she is pregnant with her first baby when we recorded this podcast. And she shares the road to getting pregnant and kind of what she did to set herself up in the preconception phase of her life. She also gets into how to spot red flags and some of the different health trends out there that we might be seeing on Netflix documentaries or TikTok, and how to really do some research and critically think to figure out what's going to work best for our body. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to take a moment to thank you for being here and part of the Mind, Body, Mother community. I would so appreciate if you could take a few moments to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps other moms like you find these conversations and hear from incredible health and wellness experts like Erin. What was your journey like to healing your gut and how did that motivate you or lead you to do what you do today?
0: Yeah, I mean, how much time, how much time do you have? <laughs> My journey was it was all over the place. Honestly, from from a very young age, I struggled with digestive issues. So my mom was breastfeeding me, and I was not tolerating the breast milk. Uh, so they said, you know, she's lactose intolerant. We're going to have to put her on a soy based formula. So from a very young age, my digestive issues were part of my life. And then growing up, it was you know we we kind of just had that lactose intolerance diagnosis and so we just kind of assumed that anytime i had an issue it was related to the lactose intolerance but there was so much else going on there was you know a lot of stress in my household growing up with a father who had severe mental illness he was schizophrenic and bipolar and so my you know we talk a lot about the gut brain connection and so now looking back and thinking about how that was impacting me on top of the fact that There was clearly some gut imbalances from the start. And then, you know, we can kind of fast forward to uh, high school where I was in a very toxic relationship and um, abusing stimulants and just very depressed, even though, you know, you know, trying to do all the right things, Um, lots of drinking and call it or sorry, in high school and just not taking care of myself, uh, really struggling with anxiety and depression at that point. And then, you know, the the whole, I think everyone is, if you've dealt with any sort of health issues, you know, you start taking medications, you go to doctors and first your period's gone, and then they put you on birth control, and then you have reflux and they're putting you on PPIs, and then you're constipated, and then they're 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 basically trying to, you know, put all these band-aids on. So I fell into that rabbit hole, all all to say, you know, approaching college and you know, what what do I want to do? And I was just in a a very interesting place in my life where I said, you know, I don't really have any, you know, interests. I've been going through a lot personally, and I think it would benefit me to truly learn what it means to take care of myself, both mentally and physically, because, you know, I was just a horrible relationship with food and my body and just so much distrust there. And that just dedicated my life to learning about the digestive system and the interplay between hormones and mental health. And here we are.
1: I appreciate you sharing those parts of your story. And I think it goes to show how there is so many different factors that can be at play when it comes to these gut health issues. And there's not always just one answer or one trick or one magic bullet to what's going to solve things. So you mentioned the connection between mental health and the gut
0: brain connection. Can you explain how that works a little bit?
1: So the, the gut and the
0: brain are connected actually in several different ways. Uh, the first way that I like to talk about is the, the physical connection that we have. So we have this, this vagus nerve connection from the, the gut to the brain. And this is, this is a direct physical connection where you have the vagus nerve, which basically goes down and it it's like touching all of the different organs of our body, uh, including our digestive system. And so when we have, you know, some sort of stress or, uh, you know, anxiety or depression. You know, there are there are literally physical signals being sent back and forth, just like a walkie-talkie, to the gut and the brain. So that's the physical connection. But then we also have this, um, you know, other connection where there's different neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut, produced in the body, that have an influence on both the gut and the brain. So, for example, uh, you know, if you have inflammation going on in the gut. That's going to impl- impact your inflammation in the brain. We produce certain neurotransmitters, like serotonin. We also produce certain hormones like thyroid hormones. We activate our thyroid hormones through a process in the gut. So all of those things are connected to our mental health and and um, you know so much more, but mental health as well. That's also interesting. And I want to kind of take some
1: time to unpack this idea of the hormones too. I know as women, there's so much that we feel like our hormones can throw off or make us have these ups and downs with. So you kind of touched on that between this connection with the gut uh, and the brain. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us and talk about some of the hormones Mm -hmm. that maybe particularly as women might be affecting
0: us with our gut health? You know, that saying you are what you eat. I always tell people it's not necessarily you are You are what you eat, it's you are what you absorb, which is what's happening in your gut. And there are certain critical nutrients like uh, vitamin D, B12, iron, uh, selenium. These are all vital nutrients that we need to absorb for optimal mental and hormone health. So if you don't have optimal absorption for whatever reason, maybe you have a lot of inflammation there, maybe you have overgrowth, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, those things can interfere with how well. We are able to absorb our nutrients, and so if we don't have the building blocks to the production of hormones, that's just one connection. Uh, I mentioned the thyroid hormone. So the the thyroid hormones are controlling so many different things from our mood to our energy to our menstrual cycle, uh, our sleep, our our metabolism, and if we're not having proper activation of the uh, thyroid hormones in the gut, then we're going to have some thyroid issues show up. Uh, I could, I could add more in here. There's, there's the gut liver connection where, um, you know, there's, there's certain uh, enzymes that are produced by specific bacteria uh, such as an enzyme called beta glucuronidase, which can give us some indication of how well someone is properly and efficiently recycling estrogen in our bodies. Um, So the gut can actually play a massive role in how well we are recycling hormones. Having regular bowel movements, if you're constipated all the time, then you're not essentially pooping out your estrogen levels. And so estrogen can then go right back into recirculation and create more estrogen dominant type symptoms, which can impact our mood, our skin, our digestion, and also put some extra burden on our liver. So those are just a few, like I said, I could, I could keep
1: going. <laughs> so, so many connections here, but the skin also sounds like it's connected to the gut. So if we're, let's say experiencing constipation and also having acne or some other skin issue, is it possible that those two are connected then?
0: Very much so. And we we have a large amount of research to support the gut skin connection Uh, There are certain bacteria in particular that when I'm doing a stool test with a client that I'm always looking for, uh, specifically if someone has psoriasis or eczema or acne. Uh, Rosacea is very common for patients with uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's a very strong connection there. Uh, But bacteria like H. pylori, uh, candida, these can all show up on our skin. In addition to that, uh, we have You know, our gut is this, you can think of it like this tube, and it's very selective about what passes through the gut into the blood. Not many large particles should be passing through from the gut into the blood. And if you have what we call leaky gut, which is basically just referring to intestinal permeability, you can think of like a a fishing net that gets a hole in it, essentially. Uh, Things can move from the gut into the blood And when that happens, right, things are, things are now moving systemically throughout our body. And so that can show up on our skin, especially if it's chronic exposure to certain proteins or bacteria or antigens, our body is basically overreacting and saying, you know, these things shouldn't be here. Why do they keep showing up? And then we can have these inflammatory skin type issues, food sensitivities, Uh, you know, really, really unpleasant symptoms. So I think this is something that people shy away from because it is
1: kind of an awkward thing to really, you know, detail what your bowel movements are like. But if you don't mind, can you really detail for us what a regular healthy
0: bowel movement should look like, how often it should be, all of that. Whenever I start meeting with a client for a first time, there's always a, sorry, if this is TMI, you know, like there's no such thing as TMI, and this is all very useful and free information and feedback that we're getting from our bodies. So a regular bowel movement, um, and you know, regular bowel movements can also vary. If you have a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, like a regular bowel movement for you might look different than someone who's generally free of, you know, certain chronic diseases. Uh, but in, in general, for most of us, a healthy bowel movement, we should be having one daily. Uh, like ideally, once or twice per day, that bowel movement should be formed. It shouldn't be loose. It shouldn't be sticking to the toilet bowl. It shouldn't be floating. It should sink. The color of it should be brown. I ho- Everyone's saying at home, like envisioning, hopefully. Um, it should be formed, right? We shouldn't have like small little pieces. It shouldn't be those little, we call them like rabbit, rabbit turds um, that are coming out. That's a sign of constipation. So, a nice formed bowel movement dark brown in color, shouldn't be really dark, shouldn't be really light. That can be a sign of bacterial imbalance. And when it comes to size, when I tell people this, they're like, holy cow, but generally speaking about the size of your forearm. And uh, that's not always the case for me. I can tell you that for sure. But when I do have those, it's like, you know, texting uh, my my bowel movement friends and we're like celebrating, but um, the bowel movement should also not be accompanied by pain. You know, it shouldn't be painful. You shouldn't have to strain to have a bowel movement. Uh, it should not be accompanied by lots of gas. There shouldn't be lots of mucus around your stool. Um, those are just a few indicators that there's usually something deeper going on that that needs to be addressed.
1: Okay. So many specifics that are so helpful and gosh, I that is mind blowing about the forearm. I'm like sitting here. over <laughs> I'm like sitting here reflecting and goodness. Now I am curious. So if someone's listening and they are thinking back to their most recent bowel movement and just know that there's things that sound like they could be off,
0: where's a good place to start? Just keeping a journal for a long period of time, maybe a month would be a good uh, you know, place to start and keeping track of stress levels, keeping track of your sleep, keeping track of hydration, keeping track of your diet, not necessarily changing anything, you know, dietary wise, but just observing from, from an outside perspective and saying, you know, cause you could eat something one day and it could be totally fine. And then you eat it the next day and you're all of a sudden having symptoms. And then you go back and you say, oh, well, I got in a huge fight this day or, You know, my boss brought up a conversation about finances or whatever it might be, but doing journaling, if you're looking for like a free way to kind of start assessing and being part of your own health journey when it comes to gut health, being able to kind of make these connections is a really great place to start. That's really a
1: great idea that I think a lot of people wouldn't normally think of, but could be a powerful tool for just making this more individual.
0: Yeah. And then there's like dietary basics that a lot of people miss that I can just provide to the listeners today. If for some reason, you know, maybe one of these comes up as a light bulb for them, you know, making sure you're staying very well hydrated. So drinking water all throughout the day, making sure you're eating good sized meals that you're not just snacking all day. You're eating regular sized meals throughout the day, uh, eating enough you know, that kind of saying what goes in comes out that applies to your digestive system. So eating enough, um, and then, you know, just making sure that your, your plates look diverse, that you're not just eating protein, or you're not just eating carbs or just veggies. You're, you're trying to diversify as much as possible. So those are some good kind of baseline things to look at if you're, if you're thinking of diet.
1: Are there any foods that are kind of top foods to avoid or that can be trigger foods, or is it
0: truly just individual? I mean, so, you know, if we go from like, you know, specifics on digestive issues. So if we're looking at someone who's dealing with loose bowel movements, you know, some of the big top red flags, we're looking at, okay, how much caffeine are you drinking? Are you drinking coffee on an empty stomach? You know, those things are stimulating to the digestive tract. High amounts of sugar, high amounts of lactose, those sometimes can be just, it's kind of like an overload to the system, or we don't have the enzymes to break down a quantity of something. Um, For constipation, you know, there's certain foods that tend to be more constipating for some people, um, you know, not eating enough fiber, so not having a diet that's just strictly like white rice and white breads and things like that. Um, some people are really sensitive to eating a lot of like cheese specifically. So not dairy as a whole, but cheese can sometimes slow people down a little bit. Um, and then acid reflux would be maybe the third category that I would highlight. And that would be, you know, caffeine, really spicy foods, um, you know, eating things that are very acidic, and, and and then there's a lot of lifestyle stuff in, involved in all of those. And then there are certain people who have, you know, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or maybe have an IBS diagnosis and they might be looking at FODMAPs, which are a type of carbohydrate that may be poorly digested. The food is not, again, the problem, but there's a root cause there that makes you more susceptible to be reactive to those types of foods.
1: I love how you mentioned that the food is not necessarily the problem, but that there's a root cause causing people to be more reactive to the foods. Because I think for a lot of people, they think, and I used to think that the food was the root cause. And then I was shocked that now I can eat pizza and I'm totally fine. And I was at a point in my life where I just couldn't do that. I would be very sick. So I think it's really interesting to notice how, as we can work on the root causes of healing our gut, the foods might change and there might not be, you know, in the
0: absence of an allergy specific foods that we have to avoid forever. Yeah. I mean, take it from someone I w- I came from a diet of, I was so limited to probably five to six foods and I can pretty much enjoy everything. Now there's specific foods that I know might be triggers for me, but you know i've seen this with all my clients too is oftentimes we're we're going in the direction of of diversity and less restriction and as you mentioned like outside of food allergies and specific food sensitivities that may just be part of your life um it's it's very common that i see clients be able to broaden their diet which is ultimately the goal of course
1: yeah definitely because it is so hard i think sometimes to balance this idea of wanting to get to the root cause of things like gut health issues, but then also kind of shy away from these issues with restriction, especially if people do have a history of maybe eating disorders or just, it's just, there's this kind of this fine line sometimes between figuring out these issues
0: and still staying in a healthy mental place with with food. And like I said, my own personal story, you know, really struggled with my relationship with food and, you know, body image definitely could come into that conversation, but, you know, predominantly it it was really rooted in so much of the childhood stuff of this food caused this symptom and therefore cutting it out relieves that symptom. And so that mentality really stuck with me of, well, if I eat something and I don't feel good, it must mean that I shouldn't eat that. And, And a lot of us are programmed to think that, and it's, it's kind of common sense if you kind of adopt that that behavior but at the same time it's very can be very harmful unnecessary and create you know a lot of nutrient deficiencies and poor quality of life for a lot of people
1: yeah 100% so hearing from people like you is is such a great resource to be able to avoid some going down mm-hmm. some of those paths So I'm curious as you are pregnant now and of course maybe experiencing things firsthand or I'm sure you've worked with many pregnant clients, postpartum clients, perhaps people in perimenopause or menopause. Can you talk to us a little bit about how our gut microbiome changes during different seasons of motherhood or maybe just different considerations or symptoms or things that can happen as we change hormonally and kind of phase through these different Times
0: and yeah, it's funny because being pregnant now, you know, and, and having such a good handle on my gut health and you know the the hormone you know whirlwind being thrown into my body, I'm like, wow, this is this is new. You know, I'm not used to having constipation anymore. Um, but our hormones have a, a profound impact on so many aspects of our gut. One aspect is our diversity. Um, you know, for example, estrogen is really important for improving diversity in our gut microbiome. And for those who are listening, who are going through menopause or their perimenopause, postmenopause, they might know that estrogen decreases. So knowing that estrogen is decreasing as we get older, that's where we're seeing a decreased diversity in the gut microbiome amongst many other influences that estrogen declining can have on the body. In addition to that comes a decrease in progesterone as well. And progesterone is really important for the smooth muscle contractions of our gut. So, you know, being pregnant, one of the things that, that causes constipation is the increased levels of progesterone. It basically, it's, it's that like relaxing hormone. It, it physically relaxes your muscles. And so having, you know, things slow down a little bit means you're at a much greater chance for constipation so this this intricate balance of the estrogen and progesterone, the relaxing of the muscles, the diversity of the gut microbiome, uh, you know, and you know thinking of a cycling woman whose hormones are fluctuating throughout the course of a month, you know we're going to see those changes uh, maybe being more bloated during certain times uh, when you get your period, right? That's a process of increasing inflammatory molecules called prostaglandins. We need those, they shed the uterine lining, but they also impact our gut health. So a cycling woman, you know, will think about the constipation is classic during ovulation or right before a period because progesterone peaks right before getting a period. Uh, with menopause, we tend to see more constipation as well because the estrogen is going down. Uh, but but generally speaking, in, in any part of a woman's life when hormones are not balanced, we're gonna see more dramatic shifts in the microbiome and digestive symptoms. So there's lots of things that we can do uh, to help support different women in different phases of life, and we we try to address that very personally. And, and at the end of the day, the goal is also to think about our lifestyle, our diet, and then we might also use um, you know, specific supplements to just help with the fact that there are, you know, changes in in our our bodies that we can't control.
1: I love that you mentioned lifestyle and supplements, because I think that hearing some specifics on that could be really helpful. So if you don't mind going into a few lifestyle changes or habits, and then also maybe like top three supplements. Um, and again, maybe that would be individual per person, but I'm just so curious to kind of get some specifics on both of those parts mm. of gut healing as well.
0: Absolutely. And, and you know, the the my menopause uh, friends here, it, I always am very sensitive to because I'll say like, we got to get good sleep and they'll say like, okay, yeah, I would love to, love to get a good night's sleep. Um, but these are general things and, and there's things we can do to help sleep with menopause as well, but uh, lifestyle. So sleep is number one. Uh, when we sleep, we basically have this, um, you can think of it like a, a Zamboni coming in, in the middle of a hockey game. It's like clearing out all the debris from the day. Our immune system is doing incredible things. Uh, so getting enough sleep, at least seven hours each night is going to be absolutely critical. Uh, also movement. So movement really focus on that kind of Goldilocks mindset when it comes to movement. Too much high intensity exercise all the time, you know your your body is chronically in this like high cortisol fight or flight mode, but not enough movement, and you're not going to be supporting motility, and you're also going to be missing out on an opportunity to increase the diversity of your gut. There's tons of research that shows that exercise increases gut diversity, which we generally would like for most people. Uh, so my, my advice here is thinking of the most important thing, moving more throughout the day. If you're very sedentary, um, if you're someone who's like a you know, one hour exerciser in the morning killing yourself and then you sit all day, Uh, try to shift that where you're able to move more throughout the day, prioritize more movement, more walking. Um, These are some of the best things you can do for optimal motility. Other lifestyle things, you know, alcohol is a big one, uh, you know, and I'm not over here saying I've never had a glass of wine before, but alcohol can not only significantly impact our gut health, but it absolutely impacts our hormone health. And, because those two are intricately connected, if we can find a healthy relationship with alcohol, make sure that we're not using it every night as a form of relaxation or you know, whatever it may be, having, having a great balance of that and trying to reduce it as much as possible. Uh, other techniques, stress management. You know, I work with a lot of patients who are just, and some of them don't even realize this. This was kind of part of my story is you don't realize how stressed you actually are. It doesn't feel like, oh, there's this massive deadline or, you know, there's this big event in my life happening, but I'm a type A person. I'm constantly thinking of, you know, achieving the next task or, you know, I'm chasing kids around or I'm taking care of everybody and like that is stress. And so doing lifestyle things might include working on your breath work. Um, doing yoga instead of a high-intensity exercise, doing acupuncture, um, foam rolling to help with the fascia that are really involved with our blood flow, lymphatic system. Um, putting your legs up the wall, like little tiny things to help support your nervous system and your adrenal glands. Knowing that, I mean, significant impact. I do stool tests all the time, and people that are highly stressed have super high levels of leaky gut um an inflammation going on in their gut. It's one of the biggest triggers for patients with inflammatory bowel disease having a flare up, stress, life event stress. So so hydration, movement, sleep, uh, stress management, those are some of the best things to focus on. And then supplement-wise, um, you know, there's certain there's certain nutrients that I find a lot of people aren't quite um, meeting the needs for when it comes to optimal gut health and hormone balance. So oftentimes, like a very common supplement that we might use is an omega-3 supplement, it's an essential type of fat. Our brain is made of these types of fats. And if we're not getting them from the diet, then we have to supplement with it. So high fat fish is where we find omega-3s. Salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, herring, these are the highest omega-3, lowest mercury fish. Most of my clients are gonna opt for the salmon of all of the above. Uh, If you don't like those fish at all, then a supplement would be a great choice, but very important for gut microbiome diversity, reducing inflammation and hormone balance. Um, Magnesium is a very common supplement that I might use with patients. A lot of uh, people are deficient in magnesium for whatever reason, and there's different forms of magnesium. Uh, Magnesium citrate and oxide can be really helpful for constipation. Uh, magnesium glycinate really helpful for sleep and stress and can also support constipation, um, thyroid inflammation. So there's a lot of benefits there that can translate into better gut health or just help with managing a symptom like constipation. Um, there are certain probiotics that can be really helpful, uh, especially for const or sorry for diarrhea, like an S which is a yeast based uh, probiotic is great for patients who have diarrhea uh, for constipation, more of like a broad spectrum lactobacillus bifido blend is a great choice. Um, digestive enzymes can be helpful for some people, but I would say the ones I use the most are typically going to be associated with a deficiency, like those omega threes, uh, vitamin D, or we might use uh, pro and prebiotics. And then there's other things, you know, like curcumin, which is great if someone's dealing with a lot of inflammation or um L-glutamine if there's leaky gut or mucilaginous herbs like uh, a slippery elm marshmallow root uh, you can find that in like a throat coat tea uh, that's very soothing to the throat but also very soothing to the digestive tract licorice root really helpful for constipation and inflammation so i could go on forever about <laughs> supplements but those are those are just a few that are that are top of mind
1: so helpful in just so many different options of things to try and kind of different approaches and what i love is that you offered that journaling practice so someone could go ahead and start that journaling practice kind of track what are their symptoms what are their triggers and then be able to maybe figure out what they want to tackle first and going back to some of these lifestyle changes i love how realistic it can be based on what you said like when i when you hear sleep or movement that can seem really intimidating especially as a new mom um or maybe in a phase where it's not as realistic but then hearing you mention hey a high intensity hour long workout at the beginning of the day and then sitting all day perhaps isn't going to be as beneficial as just incorporating more walking or movement throughout the day that makes it more accessible too because then People who maybe don't have time to go do that workout well, here, you know, taking the baby on a walk a couple of times, you know, a few times a day, just around the block that can have just as good as benefits, maybe if not better. So it's so nice to hear that some of these strategies can be very realistic too.
0: Yeah, there was a very interesting research study and I, I do a lot of corporate stuff so we do like corporate wellness trainings and um one of the studies that we often bring up is a University of Colorado study. You know, and what we're we're speaking to CEOs and Fortune 500, you know, employees who are they don't have time just like you know similar to a first-time mom or you know anybody who just has a crazy schedule. And we bring up this study that showed that there were individuals who did that morning workout. And then there were individuals in the second group who did the same amount of time total of movement, but spread out throughout the day. And those patients reported better energy, better mood, better resilience, like all of these things that we probably would like to have, uh, you know, throughout the day. So I always, we bring that up a lot just to highlight exactly what you're saying is, you know, it, it. you know, we can kind of shift the way that we think about movement about, you know, how can we, what's what's going to be the most supportive for our overall health. That is so
1: interesting to hear that it's not just that it's okay or that it could work, but there's research, there's studies behind it to really support that regular movement being so effective. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to hear that. And I love how you're always sharing research and linking research. And I think that is, so important for people to really do their, do their own research or make sure that what they're finding, whether it's on TikTok or Instagram, or if that's where they're getting some of their knowledge from, okay, what's being shared? Where is it coming from? Are there links to research? What are the person's credentials? So that's kind of a whole other tangent, but I I just appreciate that you're always kind of sharing the research and where, what you're offering is coming from.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's definitely, I am not going to say that there's not flaws to research, especially nutrition research can be very difficult and, you know, could also get into how, you know, females are not researched enough because, you know, researchers see us as too complicated because our hormones fluctuate. Um, but, you know, using it as a really great guide and understanding science, uh, you know, I was talking to a client about this yesterday. She was reading a lot of, you know, like kind of Trendy books, more biased books, and you think about like Netflix documentaries and books where someone's telling you why grains are bad or why meat is bad, and so you're really you're just being inundated with all this information that is is mostly based on opinion and cherry picking data, versus like what I love to do and what I've really based my whole you know career on is like just understand human physiology, understand science. So that when these types of things come up, you can think critically and say, well, yeah, I mean, I understand what this is saying, but also I know that, you know, the stomach produces this and motility, you know, just kind of being able to pull back and say, you know, like you said, what's a credible source, where is it coming from and being able to use your knowledge to feel empowered? Because I think, especially as women woman in, in a healthcare setting, um, you know, knowledge is power. It definitely is. And you're so right. There's so much out there and it
1: can just feel overwhelming when there's the next book or the next Netflix documentary on why why you shouldn't eat grains and now, you know, you can't eat animal protein and this and that and then then when we're hearing the research that well, we need diversity of our gut and what we're eating and we need to make sure that we're getting all these nutrients. That just makes it Impossible. So Mm -hmm. to really figure out and think critically, reflect on what we need, you know, make sure we're getting the information from the right places. It's just more important than ever this day and
0: age. Yeah, we have to watch out. The biggest, biggest red flags are our dogma when it comes to nutrition, right? If you're, if you're, you know, following someone out there who is a hard yes on this type of diet or this or that, you know, the people I respect the most in the field are people who are a they're they're willing to change their point of view based on research changing and a lot of good physicians and, and research researchers out there on social media, they've done that. And that's okay. Like it's not there's nothing wrong with changing your opinion based on research, but being, you know, overly dogmatic about a restrictive diet or something like that is, is something to be of a red flag that makes a lot of sense.
1: What was the journey like for you to starting your family? If you don't yeah. mind sharing with us not at
0: all, if you, if you can't tell by now, I'm a pretty open book. And, um, you know, I, I feel, I feel very fortunate because we, for this was our first uh, pregnancy and we, you know, did not struggle to get pregnant at all. Uh, especially someone coming with a strong history of hypothalamic amenorrhea, uh, back in my teen years. Uh, you know, i I don't know. It's just kind of, there was some faith that I had maybe lost in my reproductive system where I was like, you know, I'm cycling regularly and, and all that stuff, but it was, it kind of seemed too good to be true. We, we got pregnant on our first try, but I will say like, I had been basically putting years of work into uh, my hormones and my gut health and my mental health and kind of knew all of the things that my body needed to feel safe in order to give us the best chances of getting pregnant um, and you know Jordan it was also taking care of himself and in all the ways that you know a man contributes to fertility he was taking a prenatal we always eat balanced meals and and exercise and i won't say i won't say his alcohol intake was ideal because you know we were coming off our wedding and our honeymoon and and all that stuff but Um, Yeah, we were we were very fortunate. And I I know that so many people aren't uh, fortunate to have that experience. And um, we're just we're super excited. It's been uh, quite the journey. It was it was pretty calculated. Like I, I track my basal body temperature. So I was able to see like when I'm ovulating and, you know, we weren't putting any pressure on it. We were just kind of like, you know, let's take the next year and see what happens. We were newly married. Uh, not to say that we're not happy it happened on the first try, but we were like, we weren't really expecting it. We were kind of thinking, you know, it might take some time um, just based on, you know, what, what happens with a lot of people is sometimes it can take uh, some time to get pregnant. And then there's people that go through losses and everything like that. And um, so it was very calculated in that sense where I, you know, like I said, I've always been tracking my basal body temperature. I've always been tracking ovulation. And so, you know we we gave it a shot and and here we are
1: i think your story is so important and i appreciate you sharing it because i think that a lot of times we don't hear about the ways that we can get our bodies ready or kind of have this preconception journey where we're nurturing what we will need eventually to get pregnant even if we're not at that place yet but to hear you say you worked on you've been working on some of these things and these health issues over the years and just getting your body to a place and your husband too, you know, taking these supplements, there's so much that's out of our control when it comes to getting pregnant and having babies. But there also are a lot of things that are in our control and whether or not it works out the way that we do have planned, there's a lot that we can do. So hearing those things and then hearing about you tracking your basal body temperature and your ovulation, So many things that we can try and that we can do. So if you don't mind, can you explain to people who are listening who don't know what that means, what you do when you are tracking your body temperature
0: and trying to get pregnant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And one thing I will add too, like I I didn't share this on social media, um, but a lot of people were kind of confused as to like, I, I had bought a different dress essentially right before my wedding Uh, because I I always like to talk about the importance of like body weight for fertility and making sure you have enough body fat. And um, I I ended up having to buy a second dress for my wedding, which was not financially ideal, obviously, but I knew like, you know, I knew I wanted to get pregnant. And I said, I'm not letting the size of my body being healthy for fertility, you know, make me change the size of my dress. And so I, I just bring that up. Because, you know, I think that's an area that a lot of people, a lot of women especially don't consider when it comes to fertility. But to answer your question, um, so base, so I, I was on birth control for probably eight to 10 years uh, when I was younger. And when I came off of it, I literally had no, no idea what ovulation even was or, you know, anything that happened. I, I even thought that the period I was having was a true period. Um, so tracking your basal body temperature is essentially uh, tracking the fluctuations of your hormones, which fluctuate with your body temperature. So there's the, the follicular phase of your cycle, there's the ovulation phase, which is the middle of your cycle, and then there's the luteal phase, which is the two weeks, ideally. Sometimes that, that timeframe dif- differs, but for when you get your period. And so, with ovulation, what what I will see on a, a trend for my basal body temperature is that my basal body temperature will uh, drop uh, pretty quickly right before I ovulate, and then it will go up and then slowly climb and climb and climb until I get my period. And you know, the dots, if you put them on a graph, aren't like perfectly linear, um, but that big drop in basal body temperature is always a sign for me. And then accompanied by that, I will be noticing changes in cervical mucus. So that like egg white cervical mucus, which is literally designed to carry, um, you know, the fertilized egg, uh, or the sperm up into where it needs to go. Um, I pay attention to that. It's very noticeable for me. Um, again, something I never even knew I just assumed like, yeah, things change down there, but I don't really know. But paying attention to that as well, alongside the basal body temperature, and then, you know, seeing that body temperature continue to stay high, not getting my period was a sign that, you know, I was pregnant and there's lots of devices, you know, I tracking can be great. It can also, people can be very obsessive about it. So I always encourage clients to like, you know, try to have a healthy relationship with it. Um, you know, there's the aura ring, there's whoop, there's, you know, temp drop you can put on your arm. Uh, so many different devices out there that can kind of do the work in the background while you just kind of observe, uh, the whole like taking my temperature in the morning thing. I was like, I'm not doing this. It's gonna beep. Jordan's gonna wake up. You know, he's supposed to do it under the covers. So uh, there's a lot of easy devices to make it more accessible for for women to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, it's amazing what is accessible these days, and just makes some of these processes easier when it comes to taking care of ourselves and fertility and all of that. So, one final question I have for you is, what are your go-to self-care practices, or maybe even ones that you're working on, whether it's taking care of yourself physically, mentally, maybe a combination of both?
0: So, as of this week, something like I, I, it's interesting, like I just it seems like my threshold for um just the amount of emotional energy that I have at the end of the day is very is is the the windows becoming shorter. Um, So at the end of the day, uh, stretching is, is huge for me. Um, Even if it's, if I'm watching TV with my husband and I'm laying on the rug on the floor there, or if I'm in bed, like just, just stretching um, is really helpful for me. I'm somebody who carries a lot of stress in my physical body. And, you know, when I, when I stretch, it feels like, it feels like stress and tension are physically being rinsed out of like my body. So I even have like, you'll see next to my desk here, I have a yoga mat and a foam roller. Um, and so that's going to be either when I shut my laptop at the end of the day, or if I have 10 minutes between clients back to back, I will just get down and and stretch a little bit. Uh, that's been, that's been huge, huge, huge for me. Um, another one is trying to get outside every day, whether it's like drinking my morning tea on the front porch, it's freezing here. I live in Boston, but It doesn't matter. Like just fresh air is so good for my mental health. If that turns into a walk, which I try to do every morning with my dog, um, that's great. But ultimately uh, just trying to get some sort of fresh air. So stretching um, that gentle type of movement, getting outside and then just fueling well, like if I didn't meal prep um, or at least have something in the freezer to, to nourish my body, um, I'm not going to show up as my best self. I'm not going to have good energy. I can't help my clients. Uh, not going to be a great wife if I'm hangry. So, uh, those types of things, uh, are, are really important, but the stretching is big for me. I just, I love stretching. Yoga has been, uh, it's, it's honestly changed my life. Um, you know, over the years, my relationship with my body, with my mind, uh, I think it can be so powerful. It's a very, very meditative thing for me. I love hearing that. you know I'm all about the yoga and so many great practices
1: are. that that we can try to incorporate, and the stretches, too. And there really are even yoga poses that can that can help with digestion. So I think it all it all goes for full yeah. circle. And I love that in this conversation, we just have so many different ways that we can approach our gut health, physically, mentally lifestyle practices supplements diet all of it so this has been such a helpful conversation and i just really appreciate you taking the time especially while i know you're exhausted and so busy and pregnant and just really appreciate it
0: No, oh, it's honestly my pleasure i love having conversations like this especially with women and in these types of settings it, it truly it these are energy giving for me so i'm i'm happy to be here thank you for the opportunity
1: If you'd like more information from or to get in touch with Erin, you can find her at Nutrition Rewired on social media and YouTube, and her website is nutritionrewired.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'd also be so grateful if you take a few moments to rate and review the podcast. It helps other moms connect with the experts and resources we share on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today and being part of the Mind Body Mother community.